According to the theory of evolution, the origin and development of the universe and all its systems can be explained solely on the basis of time, chance, and continuing processes. All living things have arisen from a single-celled organism. A second and opposing worldview is the concept of creation. According to the theory of creation, everything in the universe has come into being for the design, purpose, and deliberate acts of a supernatural creator. That means this creator created the universe, the earth, and all life on earth, including all types of plants and animals, as well as humans. Hello, my friends. My name is Don Chapman, and I'm the host of Origins. It's great to have you with us today. Origins is a program where we take the evidence of science and use it to confirm the truth of creation. Today, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the Bible and whether or not we can believe it. And to help us with that, we have with us Dr. Brad Harab, and he is here to uh, show us the scientific evidence for the, uh, for the accuracy of Scripture. Brad, it's great to have you with us today. Very good to be here. Now, the Bible is an old book. It's been written over a period of, of several thousand years, and you're a modern scientist. Have you found anything in your studies, that, asking you the big question first, that would, uh, that would make you say, well, that's just myth, or that's just fable, or that doesn't fit with modern science? No, in every field that we look at, uh, astronomy, oceanography, physics, medicine, biology, geology, archaeology, all fields of science, the Bible keeps coming up scientifically accurate. Now, we can't do all those today, but tell us the fields of science that you're going to look at and the evidence you're going to give us, friends. All right. What I want us to look at today, we're going to start in the field of astronomy. Uh, then we'll walk through the fields of oceanography, head on into medicine, and then into the field of biology. All right. We're going to start there in the field of astronomy. And I want you to think back with me, Don, to a, a time where you can recall the smell of paste or or the texture of construction paper, or that, that sound of chalk writing out lessons on a board? I'm with you. You know, those days of elementary school bring back to mind teachers' names and faces, and, and it also brings back to mind textbooks, textbooks such as the, the McGraw-Hill history book that I had in the fifth grade. Now, you opened yours. I did open well, mine. I actually okay. had to open mine. <laughs> Somewhere within the pages of that particular book was the story of Christopher Columbus's famous journey to, to the Americas. I remember that. And you may remember being taught, as I was, that during Christopher Columbus Day, people thought that the earth was flat. Flat Earth Society, that's right. In fact, there was a, a picture of the boat teetering on the edge of the water in my particular textbook. <laughs> and so here in the year 2004, you know, we know 
in fact, the Earth is round. We've sent astronauts up. They've turned those cameras back on this big blue marble. And we can pat ourselves on the back for knowing it. That's right. And yet God's Word told us literally thousands of years earlier. So long before Christopher Columbus thought the world was round, uh, the Bible knew it. Exactly. Now, where do you find that? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, uh, Isaiah, in speaking of God here, said, It is he who sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The word Isaiah chose for circle is the word kug. It means basically something with roundness or a sphere. Like a sphere, yeah. And yet, you know, folks during Isaiah's time and for many generations there to follow all believed that the earth was flat. So Isaiah is writing something here that he could not know from the science or, or the wisdom of his day. Exactly. It had to be revelation from God. That's right. Okay. That's right. Many folks probably remember having a model of the solar system in their classrooms or maybe a poster on the wall. You know, we we've usually have a, a big orange representation of the sun, all the planets then encircling it. We've known for decades that the planets orbit the sun rather than vice versa. But I bet not many people are aware of the sun's orbit. I'm not. June of 1999. Astronomers focused on a distant star here in our own Milky Way galaxy and measured precisely, for the very first time, the orbit of our sun. And yet, there it was written about in the pages of the Bible. What does the sun orbit around? Uh, it has its own orbit. Okay, so and it it's around something else, but exactly. it isn't in orbit. It's, it's traveling it through space. It isn't just going through space in a straight line, it's orbiting. Exactly. It's traveling through space at a rate of 600,000 miles per hour, and if God allows it, it's going to take approximately 226 million years. So even our listeners who haven't got out of bed yet are moving faster than they think they That's are. That's exactly isn't right. Isn't that amazing? That's right. <laughs> I'll read the words of the psalmist and listen to how he describes the sun. I'm going to back up and read... Uh, Chapter 19, part of verse 4, okay. and 4 through 6, he says, in, then, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, there would have been a time when scientists would have read that and chuckled. Exactly. For many years, they laughed at Christians. That's right. But now, science has caught up with revelation and we're seeing that the Bible is perfectly true all the time. Exactly. Uh, most people out there could, could explain or could tell us who uh, invented electric light, especially we give credit here in the United States to a fellow named Thomas Edison. Uh, in England, England they give credit to a fellow named Sir Joseph Wilson Swain. They tell me that a by the dimmer bulb, but exactly. I like the light. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> they tell me that by the 1950s, I, I, I'm not sure of this, but they tell me by the 1950s, most homes were being wired for uh, electricity. But I want you to listen to what uh, the Lord asked Job in Job chapter 38, verse 19. He said, "Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof?" Light here is said to travel in a way. It comes from the Hebrew word derek, which means literally a, a traveled path or road, whereas darkness is said to be a place. It comes from the Hebrew word maxim, meaning a spot or standing. Up until about the, the 16th century, we thought light was transmitted instantaneously. Then Sir Isaac Newton came along. He said, no. He said, I think light travels in very small particles in a straight line. We know the answer today. We know that light is a form of energy, a, a form of radiant energy. And in fact, it does travel in those waves, in those paths, at a rate of 186,000 miles per second. So there's a way that light travels, just as the, as the book of Job says it does. That's right. Fascinating. That is right. Fascinating.
we're going to continue in that particular book. We're going to look at a few verses later. Job chapter 38, verse 24, where Jehovah inquired of Job. He said, by what way is light parted? Now, the word parted here is from the Hebrew word halak, which means to apportion or divide. And while God may have been asking Job, how is light distributed here on the earth? It's, it's kind of interesting to note that we know today light can, in fact, be parted. And that's where you get a prism. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, most high school students, if I were to use the acrostic Roy G. Biv, they could tell me what that stands for. That reminds them of the colors as they appear in the spectrum. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton was one of the first to discover this, and yet there it was written for us in the page of the Bible. All right, let's turn our eyes from the sky and let's look down into the ocean. All right, how about the field of oceanography? What can we find there? We're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7, where Solomon wrote, All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place where the rivers go, thither they go again. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. You know, folks who have been to Memphis or New Orleans, you look at that particular verse and you say, of course the rivers run to the sea. Right. You know, researchers now know that that mighty Mississippi is carrying 6,052,500 gallons of water per second into the Gulf of Mexico. Of course they run to the sea. But remember, Solomon didn't have satellite images showing him the pathways of the rivers. And while we're talking about it, where does all that water go? 6,052,500 gallons of water per second. Well, somebody from junior high raises a hand and says, you know, I think that would be the water cycle. And they'd be absolutely correct. And it's the same water cycle that is accurately portrayed in the pages of God's Word. So you're, are, are you telling me that Solomon understood the water cycle? Well, I'm telling you that the, the complete water cycle is detailed there in the pages of the Bible. Wow. If we read Ecclesiastes 11, verse 3, it states, If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. Amos 9, verse 6, then goes on to, to say, It's he who calleth for the waters out of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amen. Wow. I want you to, to picture in your mind for just a moment, as long as we're talking about the waters, the Hawaiian Islands. You know, evolutionists would have you believe that that arrived simply by some Big Bang explosion. So we're not even going to worry about how it got here right now. We're simply going to focus on a, a little hook-like bay off the southernmost tip of Maui, a place that locals call Le Peros. Do you think if you and I did a field trip there, we could do a better job with this show? I think we would definitely need to do a field trip there. We better keep on with the program today, though. Go ahead. <laughs> that particular bay was... was named after a Frenchman who found that, that area. And imagine scientists surprised when they realized that the locals in that area up until years ago, just a few short years ago, they were getting their fresh drinking water from the ocean. Wow. How, how would you do that? They didn't have a desalinization factory. What they were actually doing was taking gourds. They would carve them out, dive down into the water, knowing that the fresh, fresh cold, fresh water was less dense than the warm salt water. But I want you to listen to what Job was asked by God in Job chapter 38, verse 16. He said, Has thou entered into the springs of the sea, or has thou walked in the recesses of the deep? So God was talking to Job about the fact that there were springs in the ocean. Job, living in a, in a, a semi-arid land, would have no way of knowing that except that God told him that there were springs in the ocean. Exactly. And now... Thousands of years later, uh, we, we have examples of those springs. That's right. Wow. The Hebrew word for recesses there refers to that which is hidden, known only by investigation. 
You know, up until just a few short years ago, we considered the bottom of the ocean to be pretty much one sandy flat extension from one continent to the other. Then in about 1873, a team of British scientists working off the Pacific Ocean found the first of these recesses, over five and a half miles deep. A couple of years later, they found one about six miles deep. And those of you who watch the, the Discovery Channel, you might be familiar with the Bathyscape Trieste that has traveled down into the Marianas Trench off the coast of Guam, almost seven miles down. So the, the floor of the ocean isn't flat. Exactly. It's got recesses and mountains, just as the terrain around here does. They know those recesses are there, and so did Job. Job knew that That's right. 3,000 years ago or whatever. How about the field of medicine? You know, I, I, I uh, went to school there at the University of Tennessee and, and got to take many of the classes from the medical school. But in all that time, we didn't spend any time looking in this particular book. What kind of scientific accuracies can we find from God's Word in the field of medicine? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, where you'll remember that God commanded Abraham to circumcise newborn males on the eighth day. On the eighth day, that's right. Why was it day eight? Why, why not day two or day 12 or day 15? Well, we know part of the answer today. We know that blood clotting is dependent on three factors, platelets, prothrombin, and vitamin K. We've also learned that vitamin K is actually responsible for the production of prothrombin. If you don't have enough vitamin K around, you're not going to be able to make enough prothrombin, thus the, the small child would hemorrhage out and die. So it makes sense then, you have to wait until you have enough vitamin K around, which in newborns is usually made on days five through seven. But why did God specify day eight? Day eight is the only day in the newborn's life in which prothrombin levels actually exceed 100% of the norm. It starts down after that. That's right. If you are going to perform surgery on a newborn, day eight is literally the perfect day to do it. You know, there may be viewers out there who are thinking, now wait a second, I had a newborn male, he was circumcised, and he went home two or three days later. That's right. Two or three days after birth. Two or three days after birth. Right. After being, okay. But that newborn child also received an injection of vitamin K. So they speeded up the process. Exactly. That allows the physicians to perform the, human the procedure. Exactly. Right. But it doesn't change the fact of when God says is the perfect day. That's right. I want us to look at a few other scientific actors from the field of medicine. Okay. We're going to go to Leviticus chapter 17. Verse 15, and we're going to talk for just a moment about, you know, we know today there's bacteria all around us. Uh, in fact, we know that they can cause disease and even death. It was Louis Pasteur that came up with that particular germ theory for disease in the 1860s. It was actually 1677 when a fellow named Anton von Leeuwenhoek actually visualized them the first time. He looked through a, a microscope that he had made. He called them animacules. But I want you to listen to what... The, the injunction that Moses gives those Israelite people regarding meat that is, is found dead that has these bacteria in it. He says, And every soul that eateth that which is died of itself or that which was torn with beast, whether it be of your own country or stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. You know, today it's against both local and state public health laws to take an animal that's already dead, 
to a processing plant. They won't even touch it. Right. Because what if that animal had had rabies or anthrax or, or something? You wouldn't want them grinding that meat and you patting it out into a hamburger and then munching on it later that evening. That's right. So God's law, again, is there for protection. Exactly. Let's look at just a couple more while we're talking okay. about protecting those people. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7, is probably one of the best known of all biblical injunctions. Uh, it simply says, In the swine, though he divide the hoof and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you. We know today that, that Jewish people were forbidden to eat pork. Now, I mentioned that, that I, uh, I spent five years in Memphis, Tennessee. If you were to take barbecue out of that particular economy, it would not last very well. But we do know that there was a good reason for that. We know today that pigs are scavengers. They'll eat just about anything. Although I've been told they don't like squash. Now, don't ask me why. But in doing so, they will on occasion ingest parasites, such as Trichinella spiralis, the cause of trichinosis in humans. We know today that if that's left untreated, it can be debilitating and even deadly. Somebody might be thinking, well, should we eat pork today? Well, first, we have to remember we're under a new and a better covenant today. And second, we have the proper resources to cook and store pork today. So God's law there was for the protection of people who didn't have refrigeration or ovens to cook it in. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly right. Wow. Let's keep looking here in the field of medicine. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 14 state, also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and turn, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. Moses was instructing those Israelites to always bury human waste products. We look at that today here in the United States, and we say, okay, no big deal. We have our sewer systems to take care of that. But that hadn't always been the case. You know, we look back at the Middle Ages when the common practice was to collect a whole day's worth of waste in a bucket, pitch it out in the back alleyway, the microorganisms would flourish, the fleas were attracted, the fleas would get onto rats, rats travel back into people's homes, allowing those fleas to, to jump off, biting people, infecting them with the plague. You're, you're talking about the Black Plague, I see it on the screen exactly. there. Give me a date for the Black Plague. It was in the Middle Ages, and yes. it killed roughly 12 million people. 12 million people because they didn't understand the bacteria in human waste and how to dispose of it properly. Exactly, and yet there it was already written for us in God's Word. When, when, when uh, children of Israel are in the wilderness, God was preparing to keep them safe, to get them to the Promised Land, because through them he was going to bring us a Messiah. Exactly. You know, we got to take a break, Brad. When we come back, you're going to talk to us from the field of biology and give us some more evidence for the accuracy of God's Word. But, you know, there's just no way we can look at the kinds of things you look at, you've looked at with us, without knowing that this book, the Word of God, is a book of revelation. It's a God-said book, and it's true. That is exactly and, uh, right. We're going to come back and look at that a little more right after our break, folks, so don't go away. Uh, we'll be right back. Creation versus evolution. You weigh the evidence. Wonderful water, designed for life. We drink it, wash in it, cook with it, and swim in it. Every system in our body uses it. The earth could not support life without water. Water is 83% of our blood, flushes body wastes, lubricates joints, keeps our body temperature stable, and transports nutrients. Water is a part of cells which make up all living things. It is a very small molecule, but it's the biggest ingredient of our planet. Water has been designed just right by our Creator for life. 
Today's guest on Origins, Dr. Brad Harab, is the co-founder of Focus Press Incorporated. He's also the co-editor of Think Magazine, where he's contributed many articles concerning the subject of creation. If you're searching for the truth and God's answers to life's questions, you'll want to subscribe to Think Magazine. Orders are being taken at 866-313-6474. For more information about Dr. Harrod, you can write to Focus Press Incorporated, 1600 Westgate Circle, Suite 125, Brentwood, Tennessee, 37027. Or visit the website at www.focuspress.org. I'm Don Chapman, the host of Origins. We're back from our break. I'm here with Dr. Brad Harab, and he's come up to be with us today. And we're talking about the uh, scientific accuracy of the Bible. And uh, Brad, we just talked about the plague before we went to the break, and uh, we're back. And what else have you got for us? I wanted to look at the, the field of biology for just a few minutes. Uh, right. You know, it was Paul who stated that it's God who gives all life, Acts chapter 17, verse 25. And I guess my question to the viewers would be, has that ever changed? Because all throughout time, for the last several decades, man has been trying to make living material from non-living material. And yet we've never been successful. You know, back when Darwin was uh, first writing, it wasn't Darwin's belief, but the belief of his day was that, you know, flies just sort of spontaneously jumped out of manure piles. Exactly. And so the assumption from that would be that uh, life was pretty easy to make. Right. But the more we've learned from science, the harder to make life it's become, isn't it? That's right. The, one of the sad things, though, that most students are going to be uh, familiar with, in almost all of the textbooks that are on my shelf there at the office, all of the biology textbooks have an experiment uh, named after two fellows, Stanley Miller, Harold Urey, carried out in the 1950s, where they tried to take what they thought were the atmospheric conditions, put them together in, in this type of contraption, they, they shocked it with electricity to simulate lightning to see if they could get life. And usually the textbooks will have the phrase, they were able to create the building blocks of life. And yet that's not really true. What they created, as you can see from the screen, was 85% tar. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't live too well in an 85% tar environment. No. And I never saw any living tar, by the way. Ex exactly. <laughs> so, did they create the building blocks of life? No. Did they create proteins? No. Did they create the building blocks of proteins? They did create trace amounts of amino acids. Okay. But here's what happens in those textbooks. Usually, they, they will make the statement, they created the building blocks of life. You turn the page, and then you begin a chapter on evolution. And they allow the student to put together two and two. Oh, we created the building blocks of life. Now let's look at how that life evolves. And it's one of the biggest lies in science. So not only wasn't it created in the 50s by Miller and the others, but man has never created life. Exactly. In fact, science has a little law called the law of biogenesis. That's correct. And what does that law state? It simply says life always comes from other life. And so I just want to reiterate for our people that in order for evolution to work, it has to violate scientific law. That's right. That's yeah. correct. You know, it was Moses who, who wrote in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, verse 12, 21, and 24, that things reproduce after their kind. We know that today. We have the laws of heredity and genetics today. And yet, there it was written for us accurately in the pages of the Bible. The Bible is scientifically accurate. You know, if we had time today, we could go through the fields of, of physics, of archaeology, of geology, to show that this is more than just a good book. 
But what I want our, our viewers to remember is that the Bible is like that blacksmith's anvil. That it wears out many, many hammers, those skeptics' charges, all the while remaining unaffected. That's just so true, and I'm so glad that you brought the field of science to, to this argument today. As I said, I attended a rather liberal seminary when I was doing my master's degree. I came out of that believing as I went in that the Bible is completely true because it's the Word of God, and it's That's not correct. like any other book. That is correct. You bring to that the scientific proof as well. And uh, I want to put a little challenge out to our to our viewers today. If you think you know of errors in the Bible, I would challenge you to write to us at Origins, Cornerstone Television, Wall PA, 15148, or email us there on the address at the bottom of the page, and we'd be glad to discuss uh, whatever you think those errors are and bring to light the truth of God's Word. You know, I just want to remind you today that it's God's view that He created you, and that ought to be your worldview too, because the Bible's true, and it shows us a God who is our Creator. Till next time, it's been great having you with us, and I hope you Come back. God bless you. Thank you for watching this edition of Origins. If you'd like a copy of the PowerPoint information presented today, you can download a PDF file of program number 451 from our website at www.originstv.org. Or for a DVD of this series, send a $12 donation to cover shipping and handling and write to Origins Program number 451, Cornerstone Television, Wall, Pennsylvania, 15148. Origins is made possible by the faithful prayers and the financial support of you, our Cornerstone Television family.